0: And she grew up in a very conservative Christian family. She obtained a psychology degree and then completed her master's degree in counseling. She completed these both of these degrees at universities in her very conservative home state of Texas. In the course of her studies, she became involved in her school's local chapter of Planned Parenthood. Not having done a whole lot of research into it, she found their support of women's reproductive health care intriguing and something that she could get behind. And eventually, she applied her counseling acumen to the group full-time. For eight years, she worked, she raised money, she counseled scared young teens, these teens who had fallen prematurely into pregnancy, counseled them in options, most notably the option of abortion. In one of her roles, she would escort from the parking lot these scared young women that arrived at the clinic. The escorting was done to shield them from the pro-life activists who would surround the clinic and peacefully try to talk these young mothers out of the decision they were about to make. She eventually became director of this Planned Parenthood clinic a very quick rise in the ranks from volunteer status only a few years earlier. She was even named Employee of the Year for the entire organization in 2008. After growing up in a tightly knit conservative Christian family, she had finally found her own path and was making a difference in the lives of young women. Except for one thing. In her eight years of work for Planned Parenthood, she had never actually attended a live abortion. And then one day, the clinic was short-staffed, and one of the doctors called her in to assist. Nothing major, but another set of hands required for a couple of tasks during the procedure. This particular procedure was an ultrasound-assisted abortion for a 13-week-old fetus. It shouldn't be too hard. She didn't even bat an eye. It shouldn't be too hard. She'd been selling these procedures to young girls for eight years now until she took a look at the ultrasound screen. The image looked eerily similar to the one she had of her own daughter when her daughter was at that same stage. She then watched as the fetus, sorry, baby, squirmed and wriggled to avoid the vacuum tube used to end its life. The baby was there on the screen, and then it was gone. This hit her like a ton of bricks. What had she just witnessed? She had just witnessed the end of a life. That was the end of her career with Planned Parenthood and the beginning of a profound realization for her. Life matters. Life matters. She now devotes herself to fighting companies like Planned Parenthood that sneaked to snuff life out, because it comes along at an inconvenient time. Working for the activist group that had actually set up outside her clinic, that she called home. She's also taken time to work through her profound guilt, not only of the lives that she helped take over her eight years with Planned Parenthood, but the two abortions she had back in college. Life matters. At some point in the future, at the conclusion of the millennium, after the release of the adversary for that prophesied short period of time, and there are many, many, many other details we could cover with the meaning of this day, one very profound and meaningful thing will take place. There will be the last victim of death there will be the last victim of death. And I know who it will be. I know who it will be. The covenant people of God, we who have been grafted in and are part of the first roots, will, according to the timeline outlined by these holy days, already be spirit beings, working alongside Christ when this day is finally fulfilled. We have already been part of the At this time, when this day is fulfilled, we will have already been part of the education of the regathered covenant peoples. The kings and priests we will have taught will be teaching other nations the way to everlasting life. So what can we learn from this day? What can we learn from this day? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And as you turn there, This eighth day, as it is called in Leviticus 23, or the last great day, adapted from Christ's own words in John 7, brings to a conclusion God's plan of salvation as described by these annual festivals. It brings to a conclusion his plan of salvation, but this is not the end. It is just the beginning. These annual festivals, this holy time that has been set aside for God, by God, for us during the creation process. Notice verse 11, chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great standing before God and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and the grave delivered up the dead who were in them. This, of course, is talking about a resurrection. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Death and the grave will be cast into the lake of fire. Do you realize how significant this event is? That death will die. Death is the last victim of death. The grave is the last victim of death. Today, in the time that's remaining in this service, let's dig into the scriptures and find some meaning to this event. The death of death. The last death. Why does this matter? How does this event fit into what you have heard throughout this feast. And how should it affect our behavior when we leave here in just a few hours? Of the many, many aspects of God's plan of salvation that culminates with this day, the end of death is among the most significant because it pictures the last death. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Read verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ, we read this earlier, this feast, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he didn't raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable we walked through the the meanings of those of this passage. But as we consider this day, we are grateful for resurrection. It gives us hope. When we bury loved ones or friends, resurrection gives us hope. We just lost a sister, not that long ago, Sister Sheila Cooper. This gives us hope. As we watched her fade away, as we visited her so many times in her hospice bed she was happy she had accepted her fate because she had faith in this, res- in this resurrection this resurrection gives us hope it is one of the turning points in God's plan of salvation but this was not God's preferred method of sharing his glory with man the resurrection is because something went wrong Something went wrong. Let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1. We'll read verses 26 through 31. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Does this sound like God created us with the intention of having us die? in his image, in his likeness, with all that we need to sustain us? Genesis chapter 2, verse 6. Verse 7, sorry. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Life came from God himself. He breathed into this clay formation that he made. And it came to life. It came to life. Verse 8. Then God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The man that he not only formed, but breathed into him Life, And out of the ground met God, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and so was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He created an, Id- an idyllic home with all that man needed for life. All that he needed. Life eventually a partner to fulfill his command to be fruitful and multiply and care for the earth, all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air, all the plants, all the trees, beginning in this idyllic center point, and then eventually to subdue the entire earth. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He didn't intend for us to die. He said, don't eat it. Please, don't eat this. Or you will suffer death. He didn't create us to die. But he needed to know. He needed to know, did this life matter enough or would we entertain other offers? Does this life that he breathed into us matter enough or would we entertain other offers? Hedge our bets. See what else is out there. God clearly, clearly specifies who is responsible for death. Us, We're responsible for death, not him. Man would choose whether to live or whether to die. Genesis chapter 3. You know the story. We'll cut down to the end in verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then it trails off, and he doesn't finish his sentence. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed care of him at the east of the Garden of Eden in a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Life matters. Life matters. But it can only be truly lived, truly lived, as we heard in the sermon yesterday from Brother Bernard, in the correct conditions. It can only be truly lived in the correct conditions. God couldn't have us live forever in a sinful state. He couldn't because he loves his creation too much to allow us to live forever in a sinful state. This is why we were expelled from Eden, for our protection, For our protection. Can you feel God's emotion here when you read this? Lest he sticks out his hand and takes of the tree of life and eats and lives forever. He's expelling the very ones in his image and in his likeness from the home he specifically built for them. And he can't even finish his thought. It just trails off. In my years growing up, I knew of a couple of instances of families who had to ask their young adult children to leave the home because after working with their, lo- their wrong choices for so long, they simply could no longer have those wrong choices being brought into their home. Based on their experiences, I can feel God's emotion here. This isn't something you take lightly. You don't ask your children to leave unless there's really, really, really good reasons to do this. Punishment, death, is not something he wanted to inflict upon us. But he couldn't and wouldn't have us live eternally in a sinful state. He just couldn't do that and wouldn't do that. Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Again, cutting into the story. Genesis 4 and in verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, after Cain had done the unthinkable and murdered his brother, talk about betrayal. Talk about betraying a brother. He ended his life. God said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't, I have no idea. Do I look like my brother's keeper? Do I, do I look like my brother's keeper? And God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The loss of life affects even our God. The loss of life affects God. The blood cries out to him from the ground, because he created life as a gift, a gift for us to share his life with others and to build a family. Giving life brings him joy, and he can't bear to watch blood, and can't bear to hear blood crying out from the ground. I have witnessed in my lifetime Two lives take their last breath. Almost four years ago, my mom came to the end of her battles with MS. I remember my last conversation with her. It was the day before. There was nothing more that could be done for her. We'd had these conversations. But we needed to know, I needed to know, that the decision she had prepared us for previously was still the right one. When I said goodnight to her after a long conversation where we settled things and made sure we ended on a very good note, knowing the next morning that we were going to gather and pull the plug on her respirating machines, I had no doubt that this was the right choice. None whatsoever. None at all. She had fought enough. My faith was strong. I knew the next step and I was perfectly happy and content. I was happy at the thought of her going to sleep and resting. A well deserved rest. In fact, when we gathered for those 90 minutes that it took from pulling the plug to the time of her last breath, we even cracked a few jokes. I cracked a few jokes and they were well received by my family. It was, it was, it was, it was fun. To, in a, in a, that kind of way, to together happily bid her goodbye. And then she took her final breath and flatlined. And I cried like a baby for five minutes. Just five, but I cried like a baby. It had nothing to do with a lack of faith. I was happy to see her at rest. Happy beyond belief to see her at rest. Last year, our dog Charlie, five-year-old cockapoo, happiest dog you'd ever want to see, you ever want to know, had no, he had the worst memory on the face of the earth because he always forgot everything that had happened, and he was happy every day to see you. He slipped a disc one evening while we were having dinner. We didn't know it then. We heard him yelp. And then he went off and eventually made it up to bed with us. And the next morning was completely paralyzed from here down. Completely paralyzed. A five-year-old dog, completely paralyzed. The decision was easy. It was hard, but it was easy. We loved him so much that we couldn't let him exist in pain and agony any longer. It was an easy decision. We, he's got to go. We even cooked him up the last little meal. We'd never fed him people food or tried not to. We actually cooked him up people food. Mixed some cheese in there, made it really, really good. He turned his nose away. He knew it was time to go. He, the, the, the best meal he'd ever, could ever eat had wanted nothing to do with it and it was time to go. But as we held him and watched life disappear from him, I again broke down. At the loss of life. The loss of life. They say it's true that there's no greater love than between a dad and the pet he never ever wanted. (laughs) Let's go to Deuteronomy 28. Life matters. Life matters. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1 now it shall come to pass we've been directed here many times throughout the feast we've heard the references and the readings of the blessings and the cursings to the covenant people of Israel this is where they begin as Moses walks through the repetition of the law to the second generation of Israelites It shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then he proceeds in the next 12 verses to outline exactly how to receive those blessings what we need to do, and then what those blessings entail. And the message from these this set of verses is how we live matters. Not just life matters, but how we live matters. How we live matters a great deal. We've heard, as I said many times here, these references to these blessings and cursings, as our part in the terms of the covenant God made with his people. But the terms aren't meant to cramp or inhibit our lives. They aren't meant to restrict our style. They're meant to help us freely live. Again, referencing that message to the youth from Brother Bernard. And look at how it is expressed to us. Take time to go through that. This, this covenant, these blessings are what we have been grafted into and they are what remain in store for us if we remain true to this covenant. Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17 and verse 10. There's so much we could cover here. We don't have time to go through all of Leviticus 17. All of Leviticus, quite frankly. It, uh, as, we, as we've heard locally, we've been studying this a little bit lately. This can be, from a high level, rather boring to go through these sacrifices. But the deep meaning behind this is profound. The deep meaning behind these these scriptures here in Leviticus are, is profound. Verse 10 of Leviticus 17. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. In order to remain accepted before God, the Covenant Assembly performed annual atonement sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins of the nation. In order for them every year to to remain in the Covenant Assembly, these atonement sacrifices had to be made. And it was done in a way that had a most lasting impact, the sacrifice of innocent animals. Innocent animals that were your, your... Your source of food, your source of of wealth or whatever financial, uh, uh, financial portfolio that you had, it was these animals. And when you, when you sinned, you were forced to give one up, watch it die, and then understand the impact that your sin has upon your covenant with God. In our sinful state, Life before God now is only possible through death. Life before God is now, because of the choice we made in Eden, is now only possible through death. Surely, surely we would understand the need for obedience if our disobedience cost the lives of the innocent. Go back into the first five chapters, six and seven where these various sacrifices are outlined for us. Instituted so that the covenant people could really understand that life matters, but more importantly, how they live, how we live, makes a difference. Leviticus 16, back one chapter. Leviticus 16, and we won't, again, take too much time in this chapter. This was Likely covered in one way or another, on, uh, about two weeks ago on the day of atonement. But we'll read verse 20 through 22. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, Leviticus 16 verse 20. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. I thought the sins were forgiven by the first goat when his blood, when the blood was, was, when he was, the first goat was killed and his blood was shed. Those sins were forgiven. They were covered over. But ultimately, the sins need to go somewhere. And at the end of all of this, when he has made an end of atoning, and fast forward this to when this day finally is fulfilled, this day of atonement, they are put on the head of the goat and sent away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land. And he shall release the goat into the wilderness. When the day of atonement is finally fulfilled, the forgiven sins of all of repentant Israel, both grafted in and natural, will be placed onto the head of the source of sin. And they will finally be gone forever. This phrase, putting them on the head of the goat. Rabbinical historians add some color to this phrase, this phrase of putting them on the head of the goat. And it is more of a pressing into with some force that all of these sins that all of mankind, all of the covenant people have committed over the course of time that not have been forgiven, have been covered over, are now placed, pressed into the head of the source, picturing the true weight and the magnitude of sin. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Verse 23. Romans 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. We read this verse as a feel-good piece of text. We make memes out of it. We hang the verse in our homes as artwork, whether printed or embroidered. I've even seen embroidered. But let's read this verse in context. Context, we keep hearing. Context is key. Let's go back to verse 15. What then... Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. It is possible to sin after you have become part of the covenant people, after you've been baptized. Do you not know that to whom, you're present, that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Think back. This is the same message Moses presented to the people in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. There are two ways. You can live this way and receive blessing, or you can live this way and suffer the consequences. But God be thanked, he continues, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. So we're still human. We still stumble. For just as you presented your members as, as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, or as we heard last night, Torahlessness, leading to more Torahlessness, So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Do you choose to be holy or do you choose not to be holy? That's what Paul is asking. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. That's never changed. It's been part of the covenant from the Garden of Eden. It's been part of God's message. But now you have been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life, if you make the right choice, if you follow the right path. For the wages of sin is death. It always has been. It always has been. This isn't some new, cool, feel-good scripture. The wages of sin have always been death. The gift of God has always been eternal life. It's why he created us in the first place. We read about that back in Genesis. He wanted to give us life. He does that. He offers that now in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This same message that Moses conveyed to Israel that God conveyed to Adam, that has always been conveyed, the message remains the same because the terms of the covenant remain the same. We now have an opportunity to have that covenant written in our hearts, to have the Holy Spirit within us, to give us the ability, a bit of the power of God within us, to, to meld with our human spirit and give us more wisdom if we cultivate it. But as members of the covenant now, how you live matters. God's gift of eternal life depends upon you choosing it every single day. It doesn't matter that you chose it yesterday. You need to choose it today. And when you leave here, it doesn't matter how good of a feast you have. You need to choose it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And every day. When we stumble, repent and seek forgiveness. When you notice a flaw, ask God for help in overcoming that flaw. Then continue to choose him today, tomorrow, and every day after that. Let's go to John 10. John 10. Interestingly enough, this scripture occurs at this time of year when you go back and read john 7 we won't but if you do the last day that great day of the feast those rivers of living water that christ talked about likely happened in the evening after sunset on the last great day that's when the water libation ceremonies typically took place chapter 8 verse 2 says early in the morning they came again into the temple which would be what we're doing now. We're coming before God. And then this entire chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, all the way down to verse 21 of chapter 10 seems to be the same day when you follow through the storyline. And then verse 22 takes it off into the winter months with the Feast of Dedication. Interesting side note. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. There's one way to life. And you can't skirt the issue. You can't try your own way. There is one way. If you try to climb up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus, as he was wont to do, used parables. And he used, as it says in verse 6, this illustration. But they didn't understand the things he was trying to say. No surprise. No surprise. But there is one way to everlasting life, and that is through Jesus Christ. And it simply, it doesn't simply mean accepting him as your savior. It starts with that. But agreeing to live by terms of the covenant is also part of it, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, he explains his analogy. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever come came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief doesn't come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come, that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. When taken in context, when we are safe in Christ, no one can steal us except ourselves. And Scripture throughout remains clear. We can turn our back. The safety in Christ is if... We remain faithful. He will protect us from outside forces if we choose and make that choice every day. But we must make that choice every day. There's only one death that is our friend. And that is the death of Jesus Christ. That death is our friend. All other deaths are our enemy. The death of Jesus Christ, who came to die so that his people, if they choose, could live abundantly. Not in this life, that's not what it's talking about, but in eternity. He came to give us abundant life, because life matters. He created life, and he wants to share. Matthew 19. 19, verse 13. Well, yesterday we read Mark's account before we blessed those four beautiful young children here and laid hands on them. This is Matthew's account, verse 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them And departed from there. This is why young children mean so much to Jesus Christ. They are full of life, full of hope, full of possibilities, unsullied minds that can be formed and shaped. They picture the best of what God has to offer. Life. How happy were you watching the young people, both the young adults and the teenagers and also the little ones sing? And come together like that with happiness. Those four beautiful children that we blessed. What a, what a joyous event because life matters and young people represent life. They represent the next generation and they picture the best of what God has to offer us and that is life. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. All week, we have been pointed back by the various speakers to the Torah, to this prophecy here in Deuteronomy that God gave to Moses to give his people long-term hope, a covenant promise that they would not be lost forever, but would be gathered and given an opportunity to learn of the one way to everlasting life. Verse 15, in light of all of that, This whole presentation of the Torah that we have heard that has been conveyed to us, but also that was conveyed during these few short weeks in the 40th year before they entered the promised land to this, conveyed to the second generation of Israelites. Verse 15, at the end of the presentation of the entire law, Moses, God says to them through Moses, see, I have set before you today life and good death, and evil. Here are the options. Here's what you should do and shouldn't do. Here's what will happen if you choose this. Here's what will happen if you choose that. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, the same hope he had back in Genesis when he first created man. His hope hasn't changed. His hope was to give life, And the Lord God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But he doesn't pick robots. If your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I'm sorry to say that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. But I call heaven and earth Two witnesses, part of the law. He's just fulfilling the law here. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. That's always been the choice. It's always been the only choice he's ever wanted, that you yet both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice. Part of choosing life is in obedience to him. And that you may cling to him. There's only one way. Choose that, obey and cling to it. That you may cling to him, for he is your life. That's what life is. Eternal life, John 17 says, is knowing God and his ways. The only true God. And the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. I'm going to fulfill my promise. Choose this so you can be part of it. His promises will come true. We've covered that time and time and time again. Your participation, God tells all of his covenant people, depends on your choice. But choose life. Choose life. When we really understand what life and death means, this section of the Torah takes on a massive impact for us. Years later, like Joshua that we read previous to this, I think both myself and Brother Bernard covered Joshua, we today, like them, we have all the information we need. If we are paying attention, we have all the information we need to make the right choice. Life or death? Life or death? Abby Johnson didn't understand death until she saw it with her own eyes. She didn't get it. It was just a business. It was just something that she had fallen into that made kind of sense. All the other kids were going along with it. It was the cool thing to do. It wasn't as old school as some of her parents' generation. They were the enlightened group. But she didn't understand death until she saw it disappear off the screen. She didn't understand life, death until she saw life disappear off the screen with her very own eyes. Once she witnessed death and what that meant, that life could go just like that, life took on a whole new meaning for her. It took on a whole new meaning. Death means something and it's not good. Great that we have the hope of the resurrection. But death still isn't any good. I miss Sheila. I miss all those that have gone before us. Death isn't good. I'm grateful we'll see them again. But it's not the same. And it won't be till we see them again. Her life changed the moment she understood the meaning of death. It changed like that. She was done. I I can't do this again. I can't put myself through this again. Life only makes sense when you understand death. When you understand the impact of death. That it separates for good as long as you remain dead, loved ones. God, the blood cries out to the ground at him. He doesn't want us to die. He never wanted us to die. But he didn't want robots. He wanted us to choose life. And death was the only way to get us to understand. It was the only way. Life only makes sense when you understand death. Let's go back to Revelation 20. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books, plural, were opened. The books, plural, were opened. The books that contain our record of behavior. And there was another book opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So the terms of the covenant that guide our behavior that are matched up against our behavior and were judged according to all of that. The terms of the covenant against our actions and these books that are opened we are judged according to that. Of course, this is those in the covenant who are not part of the first fruits because it comes after the first fruits take on their spirit bodies and join Christ. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death in the grave delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire, And this is the second death. And anyone not found in that other book, the book of life, made their choice. They made their choice. God didn't. He's been begging and pleading for them to choose life from the very beginning. And for those, I hope, precious few, that just refuse, I don't know how many there will be. I pray it's a few but there's no guarantees on that. We're cast into the lake of fire. The last death, the last death will be death itself. That's one of the lessons we learn on this day, that death and the grave will die. They will cease to exist. If you want to witness the final death, if you're part of the covenant and you want to witness that final death, you must be found written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You must. It's the only way to watch it. It's the only way to witness that death. Whether you're part of the first fruits or you're part of the regathered Israelites or you're part of the Gentiles that will come through Israel. The only way to witness that is to be found written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Otherwise, you don't get to witness it. I don't think I will cry When I witness that death. I don't think so. But if I do. They will be tears of joy. When I get to witness that death. Because the enemy of death. Will be no more. It will be gone. And this is why. It will be tears of joy. Because what comes next. Is beyond words. Chapter 21, after all of this takes place, the meaning of this day and all that this takes place and the death of death, as we witness death thrown into the lake of fire, so to speak, and die and no more death. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. And this was a beautiful, beautifully sung by Sister Ewis. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All of this takes place after death dies. As a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes because death no longer exists. Nothing to cry about. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. What happens after the death of death, after death, after the last death is beyond words. It is beyond words. But it is right here for us. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. Let's go back to the beginning and try this again. And this time it will succeed. This time it will succeed. And he said to me, write. For these words are true and faithful. So when you leave here in just a few hours and go back to your homes, to your lives, and to your congregations, do all you can to choose life. Choose it today. Choose it tomorrow. Choose it every day of your lives. The words you have heard throughout this feast are meant to help you make that choice every day. The words in here, the words in the Bible studies, the words in our fellowship as we gather, as we sit around and talk, the words that our young people heard in the studies, the words that our Sparks kids read through when they were getting the knowledge of the story of the of the scriptures, all meant to help us choose life. Lean on each other. Rely on God. Tap into the Holy Spirit every day. Lean on each other like we heard about at the beginning and a few times throughout. When the paths of good and evil become cloudy, reach out for help. Don't go it alone. Reach out to God. Reach out to a trusted friend. Reach out to a brother or a sister. Sometimes sometimes we can lose lose sight and the paths between good and evil become a little cloudy. When you can't quite make that distinction... Ask someone to hold your arms up and help you find your way. Do whatever you must to choose life. Because these words are true and faithful.